Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by author and journalist Radley Balco, who writes for The Washington Post. His first book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, is a look at the militarization of police in America. And his second book, which he co-wrote with Tucker Carrington, is an in-depth look at the criminal justice system through forensic and death investigation. That book, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, is the subject of our chat today and will be the Stacks Book Club pick for August 28th. Don't worry, no spoilers today. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. That link will take you to the books, movies, articles, and everything else that gets discussed. Also in the show notes are links to our social media accounts so you can stay connected to the stacks. For sure, take a moment and follow us over on Instagram at the stacks pod and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. If you want more of the stacks, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to be part of our bookish community. Patreon allows listeners to help support this show while earning cool perks, including our virtual book club, where we video chat to dissect the most recent Stacks Book Club picks. If you're interested in being part of the Stacks Pack, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks to check it out. If you like what you hear today, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts. All right, now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Radley Balco, co-author of The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist. Radley Balco is here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, We're really excited. We're going to be talking about your book in great detail in August on the podcast. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, the book is called The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. Um, You wrote it with Tucker Harrington. I always want to call him the other Tucker's name. I I, I actually made that mistake in a speech once and profusely apologized. I mean, it's like so close. I I was tweeting about the book and I was like, oh my God, I almost tagged the wrong person. Yeah, Tucker um, uh, occasionally wears a bow tie, I think. Yeah, well, your Tucker is like a very serious lawyer. So I feel like that's a good distinction. All right, Radley, can you tell me in about 30 seconds or so about The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist? Sure. So the book is um, uses Mississippi as a lens to kind of examine the death investigation system uh, in America. Uh, and we look at the coroner system, uh, how it's evolved over the years, um, how it's been uh, kind of manipulated by people in power. And then we look at Mississippi in particular, where 
uh, one medical examiner for about 20 years was doing uh, 80 to 85% of the autopsies, uh, along with his, um, that would be the, the cadaver king, uh, along with his sidekick, uh, who would be the country dentist, uh, who was this uh, kind of forensic charlatan who claimed uh, to be able to divine all sorts of uh, miraculous things from marks that he would find on bodies that he claimed nobody else could see. Uh, so the book is it's a it's a look at Mississippi and and that system and and the the corruption that was involved there, uh, but it's also kind of a broader look at forensics and junk science in the courtroom and how you know how the system uh, has done a, a really inadequate job at keeping uh, bad science out of uh, courtrooms and uh, away from juries. Yeah, and it's really amazingly well researched. Um, you're a journalist, and your co-author Tucker Carrington is a is a lawyer. I know that Tucker worked on some of the cases, um, but I'm curious kind of how the book came to each of you or came to you and how you guys came to one another to write a book together because you do come from such different backgrounds. Right. So um, I uh, my, my first kind of expose on Dr. Hayne, um The Cadaver King, was uh, in 2006, I believe. Uh, and it was at Reason Magazine, um, and it came with a. I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal that went that kind of um, uh, went with the article. And uh, as coincidentally, Tucker had just started his job as director of the Mississippi Innocence Project when that came out, and uh, I had called him um, just to kind of make him aware of my article um, and to just kind of you know pick his brain about what he had found. Um, and he had just started reading about Hain cases uh, before the Mississippi Supreme Court. Uh, you know, it, it was Tucker's a very straightforward guy, and so um, uh, can I swear on your podcast? Oh yeah, you uh, sure can. Okay, so I, uh, I I called him and really without even feeling me out, I talked to him about thirty seconds, and he said, "You know, man, this state is fucked up." He's like, "You're you're just not gonna, you wouldn't believe what I found down here already." Um, and, you know, Tucker has grown to actually love the state of Mississippi itself, um, but I think the uh, uh, he'd probably agree that the legal system is still in that uh, that particular state. Mm. Um, but, you know, and then over the years, uh, you know, he started taking on these cases, and then I, I continued to write about them, and we would touch base, and, you know, he would give me leads on a new case he had found, um, and we'd uh, kind of uh, just chat about them over the years. And at some point, I think we both realized that, one of the frustrating things about writing of this, writing about a particular case was that you couldn't really provide the kind of context, historical context that was necessary to really real for readers to really realize what a you know massive uh, scandal this really was. Mm. Um, and we really thought that only a book could do that justice. And and we were really the two people who were in the best position to write that book. Um, and uh, well, I will tell you, that, you know, our original manuscript of the book was about twice as long as the original <laughs> book. So um, I'm not even sure even a book was long enough to give the full context, but it definitely does a better job than an article could. And how did you guys divide the work? Like, did you write different chapters or was one of you responsible for the writing and the other one the research? Or how did it kind of come together? Right, well, we'd both done a lot of um, writing already. He had written a couple of law review articles. He, of course, had written countless brief, you know, briefs right. and court filings. Uh, I had written, I don't know how many articles about this over the years, um, you know, easily hundreds of thousands of words. So a lot of that, a lot of it, particularly sort of when you get into the nine, you know, the late nineties on 
chronologically, a lot of that work was done. We just had to kind of um, synthesize it into the book. Um, but before that, you know, the book, there is a lot of history in the book as well. You know, I think we kind of shared the research. I think, you know, Tucker is obviously the, the legal mind. So um, he was uh, good at kind of processing the, uh, the case law. Um, in the end, I kind of did, um, I'm not going to say I did all of the writing, but I kind of went over all of the writing just so the book would be in one voice. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I thought I would have a very difficult time working with another author because, um, I don't know, I just, I just, I, I, I work better on my own. But, um, you know, Tucker was a, a very easy person to work with. And, uh, you know, I think we worked well together. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really that stuck out with me, I've read not a ton of books that have co-authors, but I've not I've there's very few that have kind of two authors notes, which I really liked. Yeah, it was it was a bit of a uh, we had to kind of figure out how to do that in a way that made sense so that we weren't kind of switching voice and tone. And um, but yeah, we, we, you know, we both came to this from from very different uh, places, um, although I think, you know, we, we, we obviously have a, a similar perspective on what happened. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we wanted to let people know that um, th- that uh, we both kind of arrived at the same place, even though we started, um, uh, you know, I-, I came at it from a journalistic perspective and he came at it from a legal perspective. Right. And then you mentioned like you had started working on this in 2006 and it was kind of articles and, and obviously not a book. At what point in your work on this story or these stories did you decide this is a book like this need, I do need all the context. I mean, I, I, I wanted to write a book about this 10 years ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, I had actually put together a book proposal and shopped it around and uh, it was rejected by uh, pretty much every publishing company in New York. Um, and Rude. then, yeah. And then in 2013, <laughs> um, I wrote a very different book about police militarization. Um, and it's, uh, did very very well, um, or you know, well enough that you know I, I I could I got the opportunity to kind of write another one and write uh, this one and p- and pitch this one again, and um, so yeah, it ended up being the same publisher that published my first book, and uh, yeah, we're happy with them. They did a I think they did a, a great job. Um, the book was heavily 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 lawyered, which I think maybe maybe dilutes the prose a little bit. Um, I tend to write you know bit of a stronger voice and uh, a bit less kind of, um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, we, we had to, we had to soften the language a little bit. Um, but you know, what's that process like, like does someone read the book and go through with like a Sharpie and say, gotta, gotta change that word. Like gotta write allegedly or how yeah, does that work? basically my, my first book, um, you know, which was also, you know, about a fairly controversial topic, but, right. uh, the legal vetting process was a 10 minute phone call, uh, for this book. We did probably three or four weeks of, of phone calls that easily lasted, you know, over an hour each. And then we had to basically re- completely rewrite the book. Um, and then after that, it was about another six months of phone calls. Um, oh my God. Yeah. The attorney went over every line. Um, I, you know, publisher has to protect themselves. I understand right. why they did that. Um, personally, I think, I don't think Hayne was ever going to sue us. I think uh, he sued the Innocence Project, which we talk about in the book. And the discovery from that lawsuit um, ended up, you know, providing a lot of the fodder for our book. Um, right. So, so I think getting into a never, another discovery process, and and we had we we actually had a lot of stuff that we didn't put in the book that I'm pretty sure he would not want to be published. Uh, stuff mm. 
things that came out from his, you know, divorce and uh, a few other things. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think he was ever going to sue, but, uh, you know, I wasn't the one putting up all the money to publish the book. So you know, right. he had to kind of do what they wanted. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, also because you wrote it with a lawyer, like, I wonder, you know, I just feel like that's like another another lawyerly voice in your ear being like, can we do this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, this? I, I, yeah, Tucker and I were generally on the same page with, oh, good. Uh, with, with the, um, you know, the stuff that they thought might be defamatory. Um, and yeah, the lawyer that the, worked for the publisher, she was just doing, doing her, her job, job as well. I think it was, yeah, it was just, um, yeah, it, it, I think I, this probably happens with any kind of serious investigative journalism book, uh, there's always going to be a little bit of um, uh, push and pull with uh, with legal people about what could, what, what eventually makes it into the book. Right. But, you know, we, I mean, we, we, we have supporting documentation for every allegation we make in the book. Um, I mean, this book is nothing if not well documented. I don't know how, how many pages of endnotes we have, but, um, you know, we, we, we print, we've got a, a cloud version of our endnotes and then we've we've got them all printed out and there are, I don't know, uh, 30, 40 binders of, uh, so. Wow. That's great. That's incredible. About you as a writer and a journalist, um, you mentioned your first book and it's about, um, the police system. And I kind of am curious how you got on that beat, like how you came to kind of criminal justice, police, all that, where that came from. Uh, well, I, um, uh, in the early 2000s, I worked for the Cato Institute in Washington, which is a, a libertarian think tank. When I was there, I convinced them that they needed a civil liberties person to do doing civil liberties policy, uh, and that um, I had done a lot of freelance writing. I was editing the web their website at the time, and um, you know, convinced them. I think with my own writing, I had a blog at the time uh, that uh, I should be doing this for them. So they uh, hired me to do that, and then. So part of that beat included the drug war, uh, where, you know, you see a lot of the problems of the criminal justice system really kind of magnified, or it's a good, it's a good way to seeing the war, uh, uh, the worst in the system is covering the drug mm. war beat. And, um, uh, from that, there's one particular case, the Corey May case, which actually sort of unites my two, the two books I've written so far, um, in that, uh, Corey was a guy, um, who was raided by police in Mississippi as a black guy, um, they raided his house. They, for all intents and purposes, they raided the wrong house. He wakes up in the middle of the night and shoots and kills one of the cops. Um, immediately surrenders uh, with bullets still left in his gun. You know, said he didn't know that they were the police, uh, and ends up getting uh, convicted of capital murder, which is the intentional killing of a police officer, and sentenced to death. You know, it was during I was researching a paper for Cato on police raids and SWAT teams and police militarization when I found that case. Uh, and I ended up going to Mississippi to write about that story for Reason magazine. They liked what I wrote, and so they ended up hiring me full time. Uh, but Hain, Dr. Hain actually did the autopsy in that case on mm. the cop and gave some testimony at the trial that was uh, scientifically dubious and, but, and helped convict Corey, basically cast doubt on his story. And um, so I started looking at Hay, and, and one thing I've learned over the years as a journalist is that if you find one example of, you know, uh, a cop who lies in the witness stand or a forensics expert who gives, you know, uh, questionable testimony, you know, it's almost certain that you haven't found the only example. And so mm. I started calling around and asking about Hayne, and really the remarkable thing is I would, I would call, first I started calling defense attorneys, and they all had their own stories about Dr. Hayne, and then 
then I would call other medical examiners, uh, particularly in the South. And I would say, you know, I'm a journalist uh, looking into a, a medical examiner and they would, I wouldn't even have to finish the sentence. And they would say, you know, oh, you're, you're talking about Dr. Hayden, Mississippi, right? You know, it's about time somebody wrote about him. Wow. You know, I'd, and over the years, I ended up uh, getting hired by Huffington Post. And then after my first book came out, the Washington Post. And uh, yeah, I've kind of, you know, I, I can say when I started doing this, I was one of, I think, just a handful of journalists who were doing this beat sort of full time. Uh, and now it's, I mean, it's great. I mean, this is the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform have become such a broad issue and broad beat that there are dozens of journalists that do this full time now. And there's still, you know, there's still probably enough material for to double or triple that number. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Did you, when you got into journalism, were, were you planning to do this? Or did you have some other, were you like, I want to write about food? 
<laughs> uh, I think that, yeah, I think the only thing I, I've known since I was about ten is that I wanted to write for a living. But um, no, I, I, I you know I grew up in a rural Indiana, very white, uh, conservative uh, part of uh, a very white and conservative state. Right. And um, uh, you know it was uh, working for uh, Cato. I think um, kind of first got me you know looking at things from a libertarian perspective. Um, and then just over the years, just covering the criminal justice. I think, you know, I think it was there and looking at the drug war and then looking kind of at policing issues, looking at prosecutorial misconduct and abuse that, you know, the, the stories that I would come across on that beat, they just made me angry. I mean, they just really pissed me off. And at some point, I think I just decided that, you know, one, writing and exposing this, these, these stories for a living would be a, a very kind of um, rewarding and fulfilling job um if you know occasionally uh depressing and and right. uh blood pressure uh, uh inducing but and then I, I, you know it's also uh i i just kind of discovered i really loved doing investigative journalism um i like looking i like reading through thick court files and reading trial transcripts and uh doing you know going on the road and interviewing people um i think i discovered i kind of had an act for it and i really enjoyed doing it yeah, that's very cool. Did you um were I guess all in like when you guys decided to write this book together, how long did it take from kind of start to finish? I guess not including like the articles that you'd already written, but kind of when you were like, okay, we're going to make this book. Well, I think our, our first draft, I think we got together in less than a year. I think it was probably 9 or 10 months, but then the legal vetting happened. <laughs> and right. I think that that added I I uh I mean, I'd have to go back and sort of look at my calendar, but I think it added at least a year, maybe a year and a half to the process. Um, wow. So yeah, the initial, the initial putting initial, the initial draft um, script manuscript together um, didn't take that long, really. Um, but yeah, it was the, the legal vetting that really drew out the process. And how does it work for you? Who your your other job besides writing a book is being a writer, being a journalist. How do you kind of mm. divide your time and your day, and like who? You know, are you writing this book kind of like late at night or early in the morning, or are you reporting on this while you're writing the book? So it's kind of like one and the same. Well, I um, my first book, I took I took several months off to write just to write the book. Um, this one I wrote while while still doing my regular job, and uh, I, I don't know, I didn't find it. You know, it definitely, you know, when you're kind of closing in on a deadline, uh, it could be a little bit stressful, but um, really wasn't that difficult uh, to. to to put together even while working a full-time job. Uh, part of it is, you know, you would do, you know, we, we would come across new cases and new stories while we were working on the book, uh, which I would then write up as part of my regular job, mm. um, kind of on the side. And then, um, you know, part of it is your, your, my, I, I considered it kind of part of my regular job because we were talking to, you know, other medical examiners, we were talking to other attorneys, we we're talking to people who could ultimately become sources for me down the road for other stories. Um, so I didn't feel, uh, and I should say I checked, I, you know, I checked it with my, my employer at the, at the Washington Post and they were okay with it also. So <laughs> We're not going to tattle on you, don't worry. <laughs> like he was writing a book on company time, big trouble. <laughs> Um, when you were writing, what sort of stuff were you watching or reading yourself or listening to that either informed the work or maybe like took you away from it, helped you escape so that you could still be creative in your writing process? Um, that's a good question. Um, 
you know, for informing it, I think just the usual stuff that I read and write about. I mean, I love, I really love diving into history and histories of, you know, sort of obscure histories. And so, um, you know, some of the stuff we got into, some of the made it into the book, the final version of the book, some didn't, but, you know, I really got into like, um, Attica and the Attica Uprising. Wait, did you the, read the Heather Ann Thompson book? Yes, absolutely. It's a great it's book. It's not yeah. the most amazing. That's the book that made me start this podcast. Oh, wow. Because I, I loved the book so much and nobody that I knew had read it and my mom and stuff didn't really remember it because we're from California. And I was like, someone has to be talking about this book. And the only <laughs> podcast I could find about it was like lawyers talking about it. And I was like, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. I'm going to make my own podcast. Anyways. Wow. Well, I'm flattered <laughs> to be on a podcast that was started because of her book. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a pretty amazing um, uh, part of her book where they, she, they talk about this medical examiner who did the, the autopsies on the bodies. And he was basically the one who, who proved that the, the police raid on the prison didn't go down the way the police claimed it did. In fact, right. they shot a number of prisoners sort of almost in cold blood or probably in cold blood. Uh, and for that, he was harassed basically for the rest of his life. Um, and mm-hmm. he's, he turned out to be sort of heroic. Um, there are other cases, um, the, the murder of um, uh, the, uh, now I can't think of his name, the Chicago black, uh, black Panther in Chicago. Oh, uh, Fred Hampton. Yeah. The Fred Hampton shooting, um, the medical examiner there in Cook County uh, cast a lot of doubt on the way police claimed that that raid went down and then we, you know, in the book, we get into a lot of the, um, the civil rights uh, uh, killings from Emmett Till to the um, the, the Freedom Riders, uh, the triple murder of the Freedom Riders in the 1960s in Mississippi. And in all these cases, um, the way that those deaths were investigated and the role of the, the local county coroner and the medical examiners in those cases were crucial. Uh, and so that that part of it, I found really fascinating. And we also, we also, as I mentioned earlier, we also really get into the history of coroners. There are lots of like sort of history books, some of them somewhat obscure. I mean, you're looking into like medical history and coroner history and that kind of thing. Uh, but I really, really enjoyed that part of it. Um, probably more than I should because you end up crawling <laughs> down these rabbit holes. And next thing you've been, you know, reading, you know, spent the last six or seven hours reading about the, the fight between coroners and medical examiners. And none of that's really going to make it into your book. But Right. Have you seen uh, John Oliver's thing that he just did a few weeks ago on coroners and medical examiners? Uh, yes, I did, actually. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think John Oliver is doing amazing stuff. He's, he's taking a lot of these complex issues um, and he's synthesizing them for a mass audience. Uh, I will say as a journalist, it's a bit frustrating sometimes uh, because as I and other journalists have experienced, a lot of our material gets used on that show and there's um, you know, it's not that I'm not, it's not plagiarism or anything like that. It's just, you know, some acknowledgement would be nice when they do do that. (laughs) Um, But you know, that's the way, that's the way that 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 kind of thing works. And uh, you know, uh, I am thrilled that like, that these ideas are getting out there and are being, um, you know, Oliver's real talent is, is, is like I said, taking these pretty complicated legal uh, issues where you really, you know, have to kind of get into the weeds and then making it very palatable for uh, a mass audience and, and, you know, shining a a spotlight on some real injustices. And and for that, you know, great, uh, we should all be grateful to him. Um, But, you know, uh, they do kind of borrow heavily from a lot of hard work the journalists have put into these issues. Uh, So, you know, maybe just a 
shout out here or there would Maybe help. Maybe just a little footnote would have been helpful. <laughs> right, right. He did. I think in one one episode, uh, he sort of quoted from uh, one of my posts and sort of attributed it to the Washington Post. So they do 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 it occasionally, um, right. but uh, not you enough. Know, right. Uh, yeah, I think they could do it more. Wow, I didn't even know that when I asked that question, but I'm glad that I did. How about this? So this is my favorite question, and writers are always like, "You're such a weirdo for asking this." But what sort of snacks or beverages or rituals <laughs> do you have around your writing? Um. Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I um. You know, I tend to uh, have a glass of bourbon after I'm done writing, mm. particularly some of this harder, you know, stuff. you gotta, you gotta do something to kind of take the edge off uh, yeah. after writing about some of these things. Yeah. I don't really know about sort of snacks. I will say, you know, I do have some sort of interesting quirks. So uh, I have an office in my, in, uh, in our house. Uh, my wife and I both, uh, my wife's also a journalist and we both okay. have offices in the house, but for whatever reason, I started, uh, we, we have sort of a room right outside my office where there's a, a TV and a couch and uh, elliptical machine. And, and for whatever reason, um, when I first started writing the book, when I kind of really sat down and put the first time I put several hours in, I happened to be on the couch uh, with my laptop and whatever reason that became kind of my place to write this particular book. So even though I have an office and a desk and, you know, a desktop computer, I ended up writing most of this book kind of sitting on a couch with a blanket on my lap on a laptop, um, you know, 20 feet away from my desk. Uh, <laughs> and I think that as a writer, I do that. I, I think you sort of get into, if, if one thing's kind of working for you, um, particularly when it comes to like my physical space where I'm writing. Um, I, you know, I first moved to Nashville from Washington, D.C. There was a, a coffee shop near my house. Or so, I mean, there were several, but uh, I ended up writing, you know, my first article from one. And then I just kind of, would always go back to that coffee shop from from, from then on because mm. whatever whatever about it worked the first time, I figured it would continue working. Yeah, you get like kind of in your little niche or something. Yeah, and I think your body, your brain just kind of turns on when you're back in whatever environment it was that you know you originally started doing that particular task. Yeah, I had an author once say um, she was a journalist also, and so she could work at her desk for her journalist job. But when she was writing her book, she also liked to be somewhere else in her house just because it was like she was working on something kind of different. And it just was like she needed a slightly different shift because it was different writing for her mentally. Uh, yeah, I definitely can can empathize with that. Yeah. Um, do you... Did you have any like reactions to the book that surprised you like one way or the other or any way, I guess? Well, I, <laughs> we had one pod, uh, podcast, like a true crime sort of podcast uh, interview us about the book. And he began the podcast by telling us uh, he hadn't read the book yet. So, <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> that, yeah, that was that was sort of odd. Um Strangely, though, he had actually interviewed Hayne, which we couldn't oh. get Hayne to sit down for an interview with us. But yeah, that was that was sort of strange. I've had, you know, I'm sure any author you've interviewed has experienced this. You know, a lot of you do uh, interviews where it's clear the interviewer hasn't read the book, but right. you don't say anything, um, which is kind of a wink and a nod. Um, but to have one admit it from the start was interesting. Um <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, I guess, and this is kind of uh, one of the disappointing things with this particular book. Um, you know, my first book uh, was pretty topical. It was all about policing. Um, the paperback came out just as Ferguson was happening. And so there was a ton of, um, you know, I did a lot of cable TV. I did I, I had countless radio interviews. And 
Uh, but this book, we really, there was no, no cable TV whatsoever and the, our cable news. And the only real radio interview we did that I can remember was this like midnight to 3 a.m. show geared at truckers and where the previous guest talked about UFOs. So, um, huh. And I think the reason is, and we, we, we did a lot of book fairs for this, and we were doing the Mississippi Book Fair in Oxford, and I was talking to some other authors there. And basically, it's if uh, the problem right now, and actually my wife and I run into this because she covers the same beat I do. If it's not about Trump, there's just no uh, yeah. interest, you know, in, in if, if the show is anything you know, political or current events or news. Um, it has to be about Trump or, or nobody wants to talk about it. And so it's, I think issues like this are really getting kind of Trump just kind of sucks the air out of the room and there's no, no time for anything else. That's been a little bit disappointing. That is really disappointing because the story is so much tied to so much of our current history. I mean, it's also not that long ago, like the nineties is very, very right. recent, but um, it, it that's very disappointing because I think like the history in the book feels very relevant. Well, and there, and there are Trump, you know, sort of connections. I mean, we don't get in, I can't remember, maybe we do get into this in the book. I can't remember the exact timeline. It may have been, it may have already gotten the manuscript in, but, you know, Trump, Obama had set up the Forensic Science Commission to look into um, junk science, junk forensics that was being used in criminal trials. And one of the first things Sessions did uh, after becoming attorney general was to disband that commission. Um, and so, you know, that commission would conceivably have looked at places like Mississippi and, um, you know, hopefully made some recommendations uh, to, to clean things up. And, uh, and that's not going to happen now. Right. Of course. Have you seen any positive changes or reforms since the book has come out? Maybe not in forensics, but kind of in the bureaucracy part of it or. Um, you know, I think Tucker would say that, um, at this point, Hain is gone, um, and this, you know, before the book came out, Hain had been right. uh, effectively wasn't allowed to do any more autopsies, but he was still doing uh, autopsies for defense attorneys. He was still testifying in old cases where he had already done the autopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a new medical state medical examiner, very qualified guy. Um, but you know, a lot of things that we talk about the book are just are happening all over again. So just you know, six or seven months ago, there was a, a series of stories about how. They had a huge backlog of bodies in Mississippi because the legislature wasn't um, uh, del- uh, sending enough money to the medical examiner's office to keep up on the autopsies. They couldn't hire you know, enough staff. Um, so there was a backlog. They were talking about privatizing, uh, you know, contracting out autopsies to private doctors, which is exactly how we got, you know, how the state got hanged in the first place. So that part has been really interesting to watch. You know, the one thing that we really kind of hope the book would accomplish, which it hasn't yet, is you know what really needs to happen is the state needs to do a thorough review of every case um, in which either of these guys ever testified. Um, right. Because we, we really don't know how many people are innocent um, who are in prison there. And, you know, there are, there are who knows how many cases where somebody probably should have been prosecuted for something, but they weren't because of Haynes' conclusions. And that could be because... Now, it was a 20-year-old black kid who died in the back of a police car, and Haynes said it was a stroke, you know, right. it was something else. Or it could be, uh, you know, we talk about uh, the kind of uh, you know, the, the phrase Black Lives Matter. In Mississippi, for a long time, Black Lives didn't matter to the point where, you know, it didn't matter if innocent black people were convicted of crimes. But they also didn't matter in the sense that if you had a poor black person who died and, you know, was clearly murdered, 
And the prosecutor or the local police chief just didn't want to investigate it. They just didn't want to have an, another op- an open case on their hands. They could just mm-hmm. call it a, an accident or a suicide or a natural death. And then, it, you know, then it magically the crime goes away because it never right. happened. And we don't have any of those cases there were either. Right. Yeah. I mean, in the book, it's pretty shocking how little it takes for something to be decided. You know, like how how like a hunch from a cop can become medical science from West like 20 seconds later. It's like, what? Like, who's in charge here? That's what I kept saying. In your intro, you guys even talk about like, you're going to be angry and you're going to laugh and you're going to be like, what the fuck's going on? And I definitely found myself doing that like as as things were happening. And I was like, oh yeah, the person said, yeah, it's probably John. And then West is like, yeah, I found John's like fingerprints on a purse handle from an indentation from his mom's sister's leg. And you're like, wait, Uh, what? Yeah, this that's is real. Thing. I mean, that's the thing is, is is West. You know, West was never good at at generating new suspects. West right. West could never go to a crime scene and say, "Look, I I found out who did it, and it's somebody you guys never suspected." Right. Uh, what, what West was good at was telling, what was giving police the you know air quotes science that they needed to confirm that it was the guy that they suspected all along. I mean, that's what his job was. Um, yeah, all it took is, you know, there's a, a process called tunnel vision in prosecutors and police that um, there have been, there've been studies about. And it's this idea that, you know, early, if early on in the process, they think they already know who did it, then mm-hmm. the investigation becomes not about following leads until you find out who did it. The investigation is, starts with knowing who did it, and then you're just collecting evidence that confirms what you already think you know. And in the process, you end up, you know, you end up not investigating a lot of leads that could lead to other people because you consider it a waste of time. A lot of times those those leads are forever lost. Um, But, you know, in a lot of cases, the original killer gets away because because those those early leads, those early trails grow cold because they focused on the wrong person. Uh, And people like Hayne and West really enabled that process because they told cops what they wanted to hear early on. They told prosecutors what they wanted to hear early on. And that just kind of, you know, uh, made them stop investigating or at least doing a real investigation. And, and then it was just about collecting evidence against the guy they already had. Right. For people who like this book, who've read it and enjoyed it, do you have any books you recommend that are maybe in conversation with or in the same vein or books that you love that kind of feel similar? Good question. Um, I mean, I, I think our book is a little bit unique in that it's um, it, it's a mix of it's sort of part true crime and part part policy analysis, and it gets kind mm-hmm. of deep into the legal weeds and into the policy. Um, I think it was it was marketed as a true crime book, which makes some sense. But if, um, if you go to like Goodreads and Amazon, some of the reviewers I think were disappointed because they were expecting it to read more like a you know a John Grisham novel. Right. Um, uh, but I will say one thing I can definitely recommend that I think is, 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 you know, right, uh, in the bailiwick of the book. And it's, it's very, very similar subject matters. The, um, the in the dark podcast, mm. uh, about the Curtis flowers case, which was in Mississippi, I believe, Hain, I'm pretty sure Hain did the autopsies in that case. Um, uh, but they weren't, the autopsies themselves weren't particularly relevant to, right. uh, to the, to the broader story, but, one thing that is very, very familiar about that case is, you know, the idea that police and prosecutors decided early on that they knew who did it. Um, and you'll find as you listen to that podcast, which is just enraging. I mean, the, yeah. the work that they, the journalist, um, 
I can't remember the, uh, the woman's name now, but the, the the journalists and the crew and the producers did on that show is extraordinary. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, they're going to free this guy and it's going to be basically because of the work that they did. Um, but it's, it's, it is as sort of, you know, you read our book and then you listen to that podcast or in the reverse order, uh, you'll find sort of the same kinds of uh, systemic flaws that lead uh, to the same sorts of errors, uh, particularly when it comes to wrongful convictions. Yeah. As soon as I announced that we were doing this book on the show, someone said, oh, you have to listen to In the Dark. And I was like, I've already done that. Thank you. And then someone else messaged me and said that she'd loved the book so much. And she's, I guess, in school and they're actually using it as a text for her forensics class or something. She has like a, which I thought was pretty cool. That's, that is great to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, yeah, that's, that's uh Warms my heart to hear that. Well, yay. Um, well, that's pretty much it from me. Um, do you have anything else that you want to add before we get out of here? Man, that's a good opening to, to throw something in, but I can't think of anything <laughs> off the top of my head. So, okay. uh, I think that means you, you ask good questions. I don't have anything to add. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much. Um, and Radley Belko and Tucker Carrington wrote this book, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist. We'll be talking about it on the stacks on August 28th. So you have plenty of time from now until then to read the book, but you won't need it because it goes by real quick. The audio, the audio version is very good too. The, the audio uh, is, you said? Yeah, the guy did a great job. Oh, okay. Awesome. That's great guy, to yeah. know. Um, well, Radley, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And we will see you guys in the stacks. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of The Short Stacks. Thank you to Radley Balco for joining us today. Be sure to tune in on August 28th when we discuss The Cadaver King and The Country Dentist in detail. Thank you also to Jamie Lafer at Public Affair Books for setting up this interview. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. For more information from The Stacks, follow us over on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. <laughs>